This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Jeff Kripal. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Jeff is about to share some of his reflections with us on the connections between Tantra and alien abduction, which he's written about in multiple books. Yeah, so I do that in two books. The first time I did that was in Mutants and Mystics. And I pointed out that the eyes that you get on something like Spider-Man um, are actually the same exact almond eyes you get on tantric goddesses all through all through Asia, particularly India. They're, they're very familiar to me. And that a lot of the features of, of Spider-Man with this sort of crouching, insectoid-like, almond-eyed being that's crawling around on, on things is, is very alien-esque. And, and somehow echoing this tantric background in Asia. And I also point out in that, in that book that actually early on when science fiction and in the alien abduction literature, the eyes are often described as Oriental, you know? So there is this, there's this racialization of, of the alien other, and there's this location of the, of the other in, in Asia, which has a long history, of course, in, in European and then American literature. But then I do more with it in the supernatural, uh, three words, the supernatural with Whitley. And I basically reread um, the alien abduction literature in the light of, of the history of Tantra in India. And I do it with a colleague of mine named David Gordon White, who's probably, in my opinion, the most brilliant scholar of Hindu Tantra alive today. Um, in works like The Alchemical Body and The Kiss of the Yogini. And David actually uses the UFO language to talk about medieval Tantra in India. He does it playfully. I'm not, I'm not sure he intends it to be taken seriously, but I take it seriously. And I, I've apologized to David for taking it seriously, but you know, he's used to me, so he just kind of puts up with me. But if you know, if you know something about medieval Tantra, so let me just explain what, what happens in medieval India. So these Tantric traditions, first of all, are about, they would build temples and they would have these special rituals and they would call in these flying female deities from the sky who were almond-eyed. And you would have sexual intercourse or contact with these entities and you would develop siddhis or, or anomalous abilities. And in India, as you well know, as our, most of our listeners will know, there are all these kind of esoteric anatomical effects of an encounter with a tantric goddess or, or, or the kundalini, as it's called today. You know, you, you feel this energy at the base of your spine. It opens your heart and it moves up to your brain, does weird things in your brain, and it blows out the top of your head. And you find all of this stuff in the alien abduction literature. Now, these poor people don't know anything about kundalini yoga or, or Asian tantra. They're just describing that, that there's something going on at the base of their spine and, you know, they're having erections and they're having these weird energetic effects. And it, it's freaking terrifying to them because they don't, they have no cultural con context for it. And, and, and now in India, say in Shakta Tantra, where I was in, in Calcutta, there is a cultural context for it. But the error there is assuming that the cultural context is the meaning of it. 
See, I, I personally think Kundalini yoga is a real thing, but I don't think it's Kundalini yoga. I think it's a universally shared esoteric anatomy that we all are, and that this stuff can happen in any body at any time, anywhere. And usually there's no cultural context for it. But the tantric context gives us one, I think, fairly sophisticated framework for it. Uh, and so that's what I was trying to do in the supernatural was sort of locate. I, basically, I was trying to take Whitley's experiences, which in their own American context are completely anomalous and strange and can easily be pathologized. And I want to. And once they're placed, though, in say an Indian medieval Indian context, they're like suddenly they're not only they're not normal still, but they're sacred and they're special, and they take on new meaning. Um, and the other connection, which I didn't really discuss in the supernatural, because Whitley is not in this zone, but there is a psychoactive or psychedelic component to Tantra in India as well. If you lived in India, you know a lot of the holy men smoke things a lot and drink things. And there's a strong psychoactive or psychedelic component to a lot of that imagery and a lot of those experiences. And of course, you get this today as well in the abduction literature. It's often, not always, but it's often generated in psychedelic or psychoactive contexts. Um, so I just think it's, I think it's the same stuff happening in different centuries and different cultures, and that we just have to be really sensitive about the frameworks we're, we're operating in when we talk about it. We're a good ways into the forest here, so let's discuss one knotted and dire aspect of contact, which is childhood trauma as a pattern in experiencers. Why do we so broadly observe trauma as a formative component in experiencers' lives? Are these entities magnetized to traumatize people, or are people traumatized because of the entities, or a mix of the two? Is trauma synergistic with contact somehow? What is there to be said on this issue? So that's one of the things, Stuart, that got me into so much trouble with Kali's child, is I insisted that there was a sexual traumatic component to Ramakrishna's later ecstasies and visions. I proposed that he was sexually traumatized as a young man and that later these, these openings were essentially sublimated and turned into positive spiritual effects and spiritual experiences. And I was not reducing the spiritual visions to the earlier sexual trauma. That was not my argument at all. My argument was that the sexual trauma essentially splits open a human being and that in some and only some cases, that human being later learns to use those dissociative techniques for spiritual ends, positive cultural ends. So that, that idea has been with me from the very first book in the early 90s, and that's what I suffered most for in all of those harassment and censorship campaigns. So, I, you know, I'm pretty firm about that. Um, so when I sit down now with an experiencer, let's talk about experiencers, and I sit down with a lot of them. When I sit down with an experiencer, I'm always waiting to hear, well, I'm waiting to hear two things, and I know a third thing's always going to happen. The first thing I'm always waiting to hear is the sexual component, 
which is almost always there, not always. And the second thing is the traumatic component, which may be connected to the sexual component, but may not be. The third thing that almost always happens is I know the first story they tell me is not the real story. Um, <laughs> I know that it's weirder than what you just said. And, you know, when you tell me your second or third story, that's not it either. You know, it just, it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And in my naive days, in my younger naive days, I assumed, as the great intellect we all are, that we would eventually arrive at some kind of rational understanding of these stories. That's bullshit. That, that is never going to happen. The more, you, the more you realize what happened, the less you're going to understand it. It's just going to get weirder and weirder. And so once I, once I accepted that, I don't, I, don't look for under, I don't look for explanation anymore. I just look for more detail. But I do look for sexuality and I do look for trauma. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. And Elizabeth would not mind me telling you this at all because she wrote about it in, a, in our book. Um, I wrote a book with a near-death experiencer named Elizabeth Crone called Change in a Flash. And I remember the first time I heard Elizabeth's story, I was just like, oh, my God, that is a great story. She was struck by lightning in the parking lot of her synagogue in 1988 and had this wild, wild near-death experience and then became massively precognitive in her dream life. That's, a, that's the story in a nutshell. But when we started to sit down to write this book together, I was just thinking in my head, okay, when is she going to tell me about the sexual trauma? And sure enough, the second time we sat down, not the first time, but the second, I would have expected it much later, Elizabeth says to me something like, well, I have something to tell you. And she goes into this really horrific story about being sexually raped for six years from the age of six to the age of 12 by her neighborhood babysitter. And this, this young man later grew up to become a criminal and, and was imprisoned and all sorts of things. So it's a really, in many ways it's an awful story, but it was Elizabeth who linked the early sexual trauma to her ability to dissociate when the lightning hit her. And she herself said to me, I think these two events are somehow related. And so I then, I then talked to her about my views on sexual trauma and spiritual experience and about how the one can open a person up to the other. Although, of course, Stuart, most trauma is just fucking awful. And it doesn't result in anything other than suffering. I'm not, I don't want to glorify trauma here. But in cases like Elizabeth's or Ramakrishna's or you know, a thousand other cases, somehow the person does redeem it and, and comes out of it later gifted, essentially. And so this argument of mine, I'm not being Freudian here. I'm not reducing this, the near-death experience or the precognitive dreaming to Elizabeth's early sexual rapes as a little girl. I'm saying that one is connected to the other in some kind of psycho-spiritual way. And that's her argument as well, by the way. That's, I'm, not just, I'm not projecting that on Elizabeth. And when I talked to Whitley about this, he was like, absolutely, you know. And he believes he was traumatized as a young boy 
at a military base in San Antonio. He was he believes he was used as experiments in a kind of Skinnerian um, military project, and that this well he this collapsed his his immunological system. He was hospitalized for weeks, and he believes that that initial physical and emotional trauma made possible the later contacts with these entities. Um, and I think he's right. And I think Elizabeth is right. And so I do think there is a connection between these two things, but I don't think it's always there. You know, there are a lot of ways to be traumatized and there are a lot of ways to be opened up. And for reasons we don't understand, some people don't need any of those traumas. They just open up. Which is what I was about to ask next. How do we grow into a place collectively in which trauma is no longer an ingredient in these openings, flips, or evolutionary bursts? Can we attain that? Yeah, I mean, we can do that. I mean, I think that's what all of these meditative traditions are about, or essentially ways to shut down, you know, the left hemisphere or the rational ego and to open ourselves up to these other dimensions of mind and and our own humanity. I mean, I think that's what Zen Buddhism's all about. So clearly those cultures developed ways to do that. But I do, partly this is just a function of my own interest in spontaneous, extreme religious experiences. I, I attract people who have had spontaneous, extreme religious experience. I don't work with Zen meditators, Stuart. I don't, you know, I'm not hanging out in Japan, at a, you know, and, and reading, uh, I'm not practicing Zen. So in this culture at this time, people who have extraordinary religious experiences, they're almost always spontaneous in this sense. And they're often related to earlier trauma, but again, not always. I, I'm not making a one-to-one -one argument here. I'm just saying that's clearly happening. And take the near-death experience, which is probably the, the anomalous experience that has the most public press. It, by definition, is trauma. You don't get a near-death experience <laughs> by sitting there drinking coffee in the morning and watching, yeah. you know, Good Morning America. Come on. You got to be fucking hit by lightning or you have to be in a car accident or have a heart attack. It's bad. It's, by definition, really, really physically bad. So what, what are we denying here? You know, and if we are a container if this is our spacesuit, then of course you've got to take, you've got to penetrate the spacesuit. You've got to, it's got to be compromised in some way to to get in to to get into outer space, right? For me, there's a quality or a feeling which runs through all of your work, and it's regarding the presence of the anomalous, the mysterious, the strange, which is to say, the strange was here before us; it's here with us now and it will be here after we're gone. We live in its world. It does not live in ours. Have we lost our sense of place in that strangeness? Is it retro-romantic to imagine a previous time where our intimacy with enchantment was orders of magnitude greater? Where do you feel we are in this respect? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there's a, there's a wonderful philosopher who you may not want to read because he only writes really big books. <laughs> but his, his name's Charles Taylor. And 
he wrote these two big books called Sources of the Self and In a Secular Age. And essentially his argument, if I could put it in a sentence, is that if you go back 500 years or 600 years, the, the Western subject is, was very porous. And they were having all these experiences and these demons and ghosts and gods and saints, and the world was this magical enchanted place. And over the course of the last 500 years, that Western subjectivity has become harder and harder and less and less porous. And now we have the modern self, which is doesn't experience any of those things and thinks they're all nonsense and is kind of depressed. You know, I mean, that's that's more Jeff than... Charles, but so we've 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 built the spacesuit really really well, um, but as a result, we're in a spacesuit and we we can't touch anything anymore. We're essentially so. Yes, I think previous cultures were more porous and more open to these. That doesn't mean I think we should go back to that, though, Stuart. You know, the way I would put it is there's no free lunch, and by that I mean. Every cultural period and every culture focuses on particular human capacities and by virtue of that pushes to the side all these other human capacities. And for the last 500 years in the West, at least, we've focused on the material world. We've focused on science and technology and a particular kind of bandwidth. And we've done it really, really well, created a lot of problems in the process, but we've shut out all these other capacities. Other cultures have these other capacities online, but they do not have the technological um, capacity that we have. They, they have a different bandwidth. They've focused on different things. So I don't think one answer is right and the other is wrong. I just think they're different. And we have to come out of our own cultural history, and we have to move forward into some other balancing of these capacities. But I don't think we can move back. I don't, I don't believe in a golden age. Historians don't believe in golden ages, Stuart. Trust me, there, there were no golden ages. I mean, it was one of the, I don't, I, one of the historians, they asked him once what, what period he'd want to live in if he had a choice. And his immediate answer was, any time after penicillin. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, oh. You know, that's kind of what I'm saying. I, we, we would both be dead probably. 500 years ago. I mean, come on, let, let's not. Yeah, you, you could see the saints and the Virgin Mary, but you're also dead by 30. There's no free lunch. We got to choose what we want to focus on. And it's kind of like, you know, any infant on this planet born anywhere at any time is capable of speaking any human language, any but as they are socialized, they lose the capacity to even say all of these phonemes, much less to put them together into that. So when we acculturate an infant, we're essentially delimiting that human being. But we have to, we have to do that. And so does every other culture, you know? So I don't know if that's an answer, but it's, it's certainly what I think. It is. When you wield your temporal divining rod, what do you feel the human condition may be in 500 or 1,000 years from now? Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I need a divining wand for that. I mean, 
So I know as a historian of religions that, that religions don't last, uh, cultures don't last, um, that whatever the human spirit is, it does not put up well with stasis. <laughs> it, it moves on. So, you know, I once wrote this little piece on the future of religion. And basically what I said is, I don't know what the future of religion is, but none of us worship Zeus today. Um, you know, and I'm sure there are people who worship Zeus. I'm sure I'll get letters because of that. But the point is, is that, you know, things change. And so my, my answer to your question is 500 years from now, it's going to look totally different, Stuart. We're going to be completely different human beings. And we can see this in our own families. I mean, the Catholicism of my parents was not the Catholicism of my great grandparents, much less the great great grandparents, nor is it mine. I'm not, I don't even identify anymore with the religion. And so I think that's, I'm not taking myself as a, as a measure here, but I think that spiritual orientation is shared broadly um, across different cultures. And I think human communication has just kind of taken us over the Rubicon, as it were. It's just not possible anymore to imagine that one religion or one culture is somehow absolutely true and the rest aren't. I just, I just, that's just not plausible anymore. Okay, I want to read a paragraph from your book, Secret Body. It's one of my all-time favorite paragraphs. This is from the chapter, On the Fiction of a Straight Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you the, go. There so, I am getting into trouble. It's not just a great chapter, but what a title. So indulge me a bit as I read your work here. Just below all the contemporary talk of family values, and the bumper stickers that proclaim with not a shred of intended irony how real men love Jesus, lies the scripturally preserved memories of a man who does not appear to have been married, who bore no children, who raised no family, who hung out with sex workers and sinners, who counseled his listeners to hate their parents and leave their families to follow him, who liked to eat and drink with people whom he was not supposed to eat and drink with, who objected to much of his own pious Jewish culture, whose most cherished beloved was another man, who encouraged his most devoted male followers to castrate or feminize themselves for the kingdom of heaven, who left his disciples the truly scandalous ritual of consuming his own flesh and fluids within a love meal outrageously modeled after the holiest ritual of his own religion, and who was ultimately executed by the state in the gruesome electric chair of the time, that is, by crucifixion. In short, the deepest reason that the churches are so nervous about the issue of homosexuality is the very plausible historical possibility that Jesus himself was a homoerotically inclined man who infuriated both the religious and political authorities of his day. End quote. So, Jeff, when I read that paragraph, what I feel as a kid who was raised in a conservative Protestant Christian home, Midwestern to the core, is that ironically, if that rendering of Christ had been presented to me, I might well be a Christian today. Yeah, me too. So, I wonder in what measure Christianity has committed a form of suicide by dislocating, dismembering itself from 
what's in that paragraph. What do you feel when you hear that piece now? It's decades old. Is that correct? You know, I never, I never published that piece for obvious reasons, but I wanted, to, <laughs> right. I wanted, I wanted to put it in the book. And you know, I had said things like that in other published work, but in a much, in a much more academic way. So there's a lot to there's a lot to riff on there, Stuart. I mean, do you want me to talk about the the life background of that? Or, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. If that were the Jesus of the churches, I would start probably still be in church. Um, but the churches have aligned themselves with the very opposite of that in every way, and I, you know, I find it. I, f I find them deeply vacuous, and if not morally offensive. I, I think they stand for the exact opposite of what is morally right and just. Um, you know, I often comment that why is it that the position statements of any number of secular universities are vastly superior to those of the churches? I mean, I... I I find that really shocking. I, I, I thought religion was supposed to be the moral beacon, but instead it's become, you know, this this um, this conservative um, kind of anti anti justice um, position. So the reason I wrote wrote about so I first wrote about Jesus like that actually in Roads of Excess in two thousand. And then I wrote a whole essay in a book called The Serpent's Gift called The Apocryphon of the Beloved, which is basically says the same thing. Um, and I then wrote that essay actually for a Presbyterian seminary uh, in, in Austin uh, years later, and then put it in that book. Um, I happen to think it's true. Um, I wouldn't write it if I didn't. Um, nothing I said in that paragraph is outside of contemporary biblical criticism. I mean, you can find massive um, massive support of any one of those statements taken alone in the scholarship, but putting them together like that is probably not normal, um, but it seems obvious to me. And it also is rooted in my experience in a Catholic seminary, which was basically a gay community. And as a straight man, I just didn't fit in. And, and I didn't have a judgment. I, I wasn't, that wasn't a judgment. It was a loss. It, it, it's an exile. And I felt sad about it. Um, but I also found the Roman Catholic Church in this, in this case to be profoundly hypocritical. You, you have this anti-homosexuality line to people like Joseph Ratzinger going on in the 80s. And the church itself is one of the gayest institutions on the planet. And, and I say that again with admiration, not, not condemnation, but, but not admiration for the, the hypocrisy and the, the denial. Um, and that's really why I left the church to go back to religion was because of the homosexual issue. I just, I couldn't bear the hypocrisy. And, and I still can't. Um, and that's before we get to the misogyny, which is related actually to this, I think. You know, um, gay men for all their virtues don't need women um, and don't love women. Um, so, you know, that's, that might sound like a scandalous thing to say, but I think that's related to the misogyny of the church as well. But I, I guess, don't know what, 
What, what else do you, I mean, I'm happy to talk about, I mean, yeah. that's all my early work. I mean, th that book you read from, you know, the subtitle is Erotic and Esoteric Dimensions of the History of Religions. The first whole half of my career, I talked about nothing but sex. You know, that's all I talked about, you know, and I just got tired of that. I was like, okay, I said enough. And I, I actually figured, I actually feel like I figured out the answers to my questions. So I went on to something less charged, like the paranormal. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but, but I'm happy to talk more about that. I don't mean to be dismissive of it. No, not at all. I would like to riff a bit more on that, actually, because I don't really see you or me, for that matter, as having left the church. I see the church having left the Christ you described. I see you and I as having attempted to return to that origin Christ. Do you feel that original church is alive, or has it been successfully eradicated? Where does it live? No, 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 no. So my tradition is the Roman Catholic tradition, and it's still very much alive. It, it, it's had some horrendous moments that boggle my own mind, but it's filled with truly thoughtful, caring, and very smart human beings many of whom I know and have interacted with over the years and whom I frankly love. And, and I, I mean monks, you know, I mean priests, I mean nuns, I mean lay people, I mean the whole, the whole shebang. So I don't, I don't condemn those people. I condemn the tradition for the positions it's taken, which I think have been devastating on other human beings. And that's why I condemn them, not because I'm somehow some morally righteous person, I get upset because these positions, when, when I was in the seminary, there were three suicides and it was a little community, Stuart. We're talking about three men who tried to kill themselves and two of them did kill themselves. And the third one was my best friend. And I know why, why he did it. He did it because he was gay and he was trying to remove the offending party. And I suspect the other two had similar reasons. So these positions are not innocent. They they kill people. And and I'm just I'm horrified by that. And you know, I also imagine I don't have a son, but if I had a gay son, I would be really, really pissed at the church for this position. So that's why I object. The other thing I think that Catholicism has gotten wrong or Christianity has gotten wrong, um, and this is why I often describe myself as a Gnostic. Uh, Christian is, I don't think divinity is unique to a first century rabbi. I, I actually think we're all God. And, and I don't, I mean that. I really think we're essentially, we're, we, we don't know we're God, but we've sort of forgotten we're God, but we're God. And I think someone like Jesus or someone like Ramakrishna or someone like these early Christian Gnostics, they realize, they realize the truth of things, which is that Consciousness itself is, is divinity, and, and it's cosmic. And so that's the kind of Christianity, you know, I would go to church for, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, it's hard, you know. I just can't. I can't do it. I couldn't fake it anymore. I'll tell you when I stopped. This is kind of a funny story. We, 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 have, we have daughters, and when they were little, little things, uh, they're not little anymore, <laughs> but they were about seven and ten or so. I don't know what they were. And we we had gone to church in Sugarland, Texas, and 
there we had this priest who was he was kind of a jerk. He 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 wasn't very smart either. And he the sermon was all about how bad and evil biblical scholarship is and why good Catholics shouldn't listen to what the scholars were saying. And on the way home, we were driving our classic minivan, you know, down down the road, and my our 10-year-old popped up in the back and she said, Dad, that sermon today, that was about you, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I laughed, I laughed just like that, and I was like, yeah, no, honey, it wasn't about me. I I don't think he knows me, but yeah, it kind of was about me. <laughs> and it was like, okay, I can't, I can't do this anymore, you know, I can't, I can't just lie. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so this is a natural turn into the perils of the paranormal. The divine, but also generally any endeavor that puts us into contact with the deeper registers of reality. As one instantiation, I heard tell of a researcher recently who has found that 40% of abductees have chronic fatigue or an adjacent affliction. It's 1% in the general populace. So there are these mysterious maladies attending contact. Should we be dissuaded by these kinds of cautionary tales? Do the gifts and the gains exceed the liabilities of these experiences? Yeah. So <clears throat> I think any theory of the paranormal or the mystical you develop has to explain both the unbelief and the belief. Why, why people don't take this stuff seriously or why they have want nothing to do with it, but also why they sometimes do believe it and want, want to have everything to do with it. I think you have to explain both things. And I've, I, you know, I live in the academy. I live, breathe, and eat in the academy, and I, I'm around some of the smartest people on the planet, virtually all of whom don't believe any of this. And I have a great deal of respect for them and why they don't believe. And, and, and to put it simply, I don't think they believe because they haven't had the experiences. And they, they, they're too solid. Their spacesuit's on too tight. And, but God bless them. You, know? they, you can live a happy human life like that. You know? And I'm not so sure I want my own children um, to have faulty spacesuits. Um, but here's the thing, Stuart. Life traumatizes us. I hate to tell you this, but we're both going to die. You know, in fact, everybody on the planet is going to die. And so life itself is traumatic and traumatic stuff happens to people all the time. And during some of those openings of the spacesuit, they have profound spiritual experiences and they need to work with them and, and deal with them, not because they have to, but because these are very positive outcomes that, that are working towards some end that we don't quite understand. I really believe that. Um, so, but yeah, I would never ever encourage someone to pursue these things regardless. And I would never... I never want to romanticize or idealize the sacred as just some positive force in society. I don't think it is. I think we're wrestling with ourselves here and we're kind of in a magical war 
and um, but I don't mean a violent. I don't mean physical violence. I mean we're really struggling with ideas here, and we're really determining what the experiences of our descendants will be by who who wins these cultural wars. Essentially, I really believe that. I think you and I and everyone listening, everything we think and feel is really a product of our ancestors and what they thought and said and what they debated and who won and who lost. I love that you brought up ancestors. Let's talk about ancestors. I started working more directly with my ancestors, guides, and allies a few years ago. And after 20-some years of Zen practice, I finally began addressing my ancestors. And as soon as I did, a flood of reorientation arrived in my life, a palpable sense my life is only possible because of unspeakable shit my ancestors went through. What is our status in regards to genealogical amnesia? For most of human existence, ancestors were a central daily presence, and we've siphoned away our deep story, arguably, yeah. into our devices, diversions. Are we going to recover that deep memory? Are we over the precipice on that? I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know, Stuart. I mean, that again goes back to my Catholicism. I mean, the ancestors were big. Those were the communion of the saints, and those were the people you prayed for every day at Mass, and you had Masses said for them, and all kinds of things. I mean, they, they, those were a big deal. Um, I don't know. I guess I want to say something else about the ancestors. I, of course, I think we are the ancestors. <laughs> um, you know, I, if, you, if you really got enough beer in me or a couple glasses of whiskey and asked me what I really think, I really think reincarnation is a way better explanation than this one life nonsense we talk about. And so I, I don't actually believe, believe in dead people. I mean, I think we're the dead. And, and so we're kind of carrying on our previous lives in this life. So I don't want I don't want to um, again um, romanticize our ancestors. I just think they were fundamentally wrong about all sorts of things, and I'm sure we're I know we're fundamentally wrong about all sorts of things that our descendants will look back on and say, "What the fuck were they thinking about?" Right? I mean, they're like <laughs> these people were crazy. These people were crazy, and and they'll be right, you know. And so, I mean, God bless death. You know, God bless the generations. I think if, if there's any hope of, of the species improving, it's, you know, as, as the physicist once said, science advances one funeral at a time. And, you know, there's some, there's some basic truth at that. So I, I love my ancestors, but I don't want to believe what they believe. And I hope our descendants don't believe what we believe, that, and I hope they're better off than we are. And I think we're in this process, you know, um, and that's kind of how I live my life, Stuart. I mean, when I write books, and that's kind of what I do, really. At the end of the day, if you ask me, well, what do you do? I'm like, uh, I'm a writer. Who are you writing for? I would say, my future self. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I imagine this, this, this person two or three generations down the line picking up one of these books and saying, geez, that's really good. Yeah. You know, that, what is that? What did he mean by that? And how can I do that now? And she will do it differently. Yeah. You know? And um, so that conversation, that kind of multi-generational, this is why I love higher education, that kind of multi-generational, you know, conversation is where I, I would put 
the hope. And, you know, the other question you had, which you haven't asked yet, is how do we flip the whole culture? The, the yeah. answer, my answer to that is we, you can only do that through education. There, you have to embed that in a practice that virtually every, mem- every member of a culture engages in over many, many generations, and the flip will happen gradually. It, 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 it'll happen suddenly for individuals here or there, but as a culture, it's got to be this gradual. It's got to be this gradual process. There's this fascinating aspect to the flip. Whenever the flip occurs, the person experiences it from their present developmental stage or station. Elizabeth, as a case in point, if you were to deliver to a five-year-old child that bolt of lightning and give him a near-death experience, arguably, it will not be the same transformational event as hitting a 50-year-old woman with the same experience. She was mature, developed enough to radically transform. People do evolve and transform, but it's mysterious how, when, why. We all want to know that magic recipe. (laughs) So I guess in a way, at this mature stage of your work and offering to the world, I'm wondering if you know the recipe to the secret sauce. Is there a reliable formula of method or practices? Well, I mean, so in terms, in terms of practices, which is what I hear you asking about, I mean, the two things that come that I always talk about, I mean, I do get asked that question a lot is how do we do this? And the answer is always community, you know, sharing experiences in a community and supporting one another, which might sound trite, but is actually really hard to do, particularly for when the experiences are anomalous and they don't fit in. I mean, that's the whole problem with them. They don't fit in. Um, but also, this is going to sound really old-fashioned, Stuart, yeah, but I, I got asked this a lot at Esalen. I don't, I don't know if you've been to Esalen, but it's this, it was, it's this real hip kind of new age yoga, you know, community. And the question is always, you know, what's your practice? And what, what they mean by that is, well, are you doing Zen meditation or are you doing Kundalini yoga? Or and I always, I always upset them so much. They, I would always say, oh, that's easy. My practice is reading. And they looked at me like I was a nutcase, you know, but if you've read authors of the impossible, you know, I'm totally serious. I think states of consciousness and different states of humanity are encoded in special texts that special authors write and that those books encode that, that mind and that body and can be picked up way down the temporal road in in some really weird way. Special books are magical objects. And I, my own feeling is that as a culture, we haven't lost that yet, but we're beginning to lose that. And to the extent we go entirely online or go digital, I just think it'll be a disaster. Um, Because I think there's something about profound reading that carries these states and that carries culture. Um, so that that those are my two answers. They're 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 they might sound old fashioned, but I think maybe that's why they work. Our ancestors found them useful over thousands of years. You've shared at various times and places on your eating disorder as a formative component in your early spiritual unfolding. 
Do you feel that experience led you to a form of discernment? It's understandable as a strategy to suppose that not eating would facilitate transcending the body. But having tested that and lived through it, do you feel it sharpened your differentiation regarding dissociation as distinct from transcending? There's a lot of misplaced romance around pathology as a path. You know, whether it's self-flagellation, perceiving the body as the enemy, did all that give you key discernment skills later on in life? Uh, yes, it did. Um, so, yeah, two things to say, Stuart. So, the OCD or the um, the anorexia. So, so for, for those viewers or listeners who don't know, from about nineteen. 77 or 78 to about 1983, I was deeply, deeply anorexic. And we did not have a word yet, by the way. Karen Carpenter died, I want to say in 84, somewhere in there. And Karen's was the first public case of anorexia, and it was associated entirely with young women. And so a young man doing this in the late 70s, there was just no context. It was just crazy. It didn't make any sense. And it was linked in my case to a a kind of genetic OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder that manifested morally in something that my Catholic tradition calls scrupulosity. And essentially scrupulosity is the condition in which you feel guilty for pretty much everything. (laughs) You just make shit up. You know, you just, you're, you're, you, you walk down the sidewalk wrong or you, you didn't uh, hold the, communion plate right or you you did you're always guilty for something and you're always going to hell and it's a kind of moral torture because you really believe that um and so this 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 obsessive not eating was also a way by the way of not being sexual it was a way of stopping my adolescence which was very effective by the way i didn't actually have a sexual thought for years and years um so Two things happened. One is through spiritual direction, another reason I so admire Catholicism, this tradition of spiritual direction, and also psychoanalysis. They put me into real psychoanalysis with a monk who was a psychoanalyst. I learned two big things. One, I learned not to trust my own conscience. I learned that conscience, one's sense of right and wrong, is can be just screwed up. It, it can just be wrong. And it's largely an interjection from authorities around you anyway. It's just not the case. Guilt is manufactured. It's, it's not necessarily an accurate perception of something you did. So that, that was profound. I became extremely suspicious of people's moralities, even deeply felt moralities as a result. The second thing I learned was that the human mind has an ability to completely control the person in ways that are completely offline. You know, this is what Freud called the unconscious, but we can call it whatever we want. And it was literally killing me. It was going to end my life and I was not going to have any ability to stop it. And what gave me the ability to stop it was not some ability to stop it. It was simply becoming conscious or aware of what was going on. So I learned that becoming aware 
was this magical thing that just had all of these physical and spiritual effects that were immediate. You know, when I realized that my anorexia was an attempt to stop my sexuality, which is something I arrived at through dream interpretation with my analyst, it was it wasn't that it wasn't that I somehow now have the willpower to eat. It was like it just evaporated. It was like, of course that's what I was doing. How dumb is that? You know? And Stuart, I hadn't eaten for six years. And guess what? I was fucking hungry. I ate everything inside. <laughs> I ate and I ate and I ate. And I gained like 70 pounds or something in six months. I was so hungry. But I was completely unable to eat after or before the awareness. And after the awareness, it was just automatic. Mm. It was just like you took a knob and just spun it. And now the stereo was operating at a different volume. And it was entirely outside my control. And so I, I was just in awe of that. Because if my religious behavior, and it was all religious behavior, Stuart, if you would, if you would have asked the 17-year-old Jeff, Jeff, why aren't you eating? Why, why do you look like a skeleton? I would have said, Stuart, I'm trying to be a saint. And that would have been entirely honest. That would have been exactly what I thought. But I realized that what I thought and what was going on were two different things. And if I could be so driven, if my religious behaviors could be so driven, then so could everybody else's. And so I learned not to trust people's religious behaviors, just like I don't trust people's moral convictions. So it made me deeply, deeply suspicious of morality and religion. <laughs> that's, that's really the result of, of uh, almost dying from anorexia, you know. And it wasn't, this wasn't an abstract thing I learned, you know, in a classroom. It was like, no, I almost fucking died. I almost died. And I know, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be so skinny you can see your bones and to barely have enough energy to walk up a flight of stairs. I know what that's like. And I wasn't doing that. I'm not taking credit for that. I, that was done to me. And when I realized what was doing it to me, it just disappeared like a ghost. It was just gone. It's remarkable to place the anorexia beside the experience in Calcutta. On both occasions, these significant spiritual experiences nearly killed you. Yeah, it's true. No, it's, that's really true. Thank goodness you weren't, but it's a testament to the dangers of sacred impulses. You brought up reincarnation half-jokingly, but it calls to mind the work of Ian Stevenson and his successors at the University of Virginia, cases numbering in the thousands at this point that they've investigated. What is your real take on reincarnation? Is it the best explanation for what we're observing in these studies and accounts? So I, this is a long conversation. I don't mean to be opaque, but the answer is yes and no. So I, I actually don't believe in reincarnation, and yet I do. And what I mean by that is I think there's probably only one mind or, or one, one, one sentient being that is the universe. But I think these reincarnation memories are sort of imaginal 
expressions of that that get interpreted as some kind of balloon floating from life to life. I think that's way too simple. I don't think that's what's happening, but I think it's all one life form, you know, kind of remembering different moments of itself. So I think those memories are real and, and, and accurate, but I don't actually think, I don't believe in balloons, you know, popping from one body to another. I just, I just don't. And that kind of thinking is not my own. I mean, that's that's found in India all over, too. That's not – people have been struggling with reincarnation memories for millennia, particularly Buddhists, by the way, Stuart. <laughs> Guilty. Buddhists have this problem. There is no self, and yet – And yet it migrates. And yet it migrates. <laughs> that's the problem, okay? And so that's kind of what – I guess I'm saying I'm a kind of a Buddhist here, you know? Yeah, something migrates, but it's, it's, it's not ultimately who we are. Let me put a footnote on the reincarnation thing. It's, it's much more human and, and parental, actually. So before we had children, I believed sincerely that human beings were blank slates upon which we wrote things. And that being a parent was about forming a personality after two children. That's nonsense. <laughs> that, that, that is as far from the truth as those people pop out of the woman as distinct personalities. Yeah. They're, they're distinct personalities in the woman. And being a parent isn't about shaping a personality. It's about getting out of the way. Right. That's what I mean, you know, you know, this as well as I do. You can really mess a kid up, but you actually can't change the kid. You know, and this is why, I, you know, what I joke about is like, well, before kids, I, you know, after kids, I think I do believe in reincarnation because they're their own thing and they're not the same. Our two kids are like ones from they're from different planets. So. That to me, I can see why so many cultures were like, yeah, it's it's about reincarnation. I'm like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's for me, it's good enough. I guess that's where I would end. It's a good enough belief. There is no self and yet it migrates. For more on Jeff Kripal, check the show notes. The book Dark Files by Michael Schratt stands out in the realm of aliens and artists placing tremendous emphasis on artistic depictions of little-known or forgotten encounters. The tome is figured with a multitude of brilliant digital artwork by Tom Bogan, whom Schratt commissioned. In fact, the book's byline is, a pictorial history of lost, forgotten, and obscure UFO encounters. It does not disappoint. Among the numerous cases is a vividly depicted account of the aircraft carrier USS Franklin D. Roosevelt which had a shocking encounter with a cigar-shaped craft in 1958 at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Chester Grusinski was a crewman on that ship during the event. He and some other 25 witnesses observed a cigar-shaped craft hovering about 100 feet over their ship. The cigar craft had windows. In those windows, humanoid beings. Witnesses reported a palpable heat emanating from the craft to the aircraft carrier. According to reports, the Roosevelt also had encounters with craft in 1952 and 1956 at Rio de Janeiro. Finally, again in 1973. Why? Maybe because it was the first aircraft carrier constantly armed 
with nuclear weapons. Bogan's renderings, as well as original sketches by the witness Chester Gruzinski, can be found in Dark Files by Michael Schratt. For more, check the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one work with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on transpersonal hypnotherapy, anomalous experiences, and creativity as a spiritual path. To book a session, go to theliminalmuse.com or check the show notes. Also, the Experiencer Group, created expressly to provide support and community for people who've had anomalous experiences of all kinds. Private, protected, no trolls, lots of love. Use the code Aliens and Artists to get a month free. Click the link in the show notes to discover more. If you enjoy the show, consider becoming a patron. It's expensive, time-consuming, burdensome. A random number generator constantly adjusts your pledges, adding unpredictability to the shitty mix. Feel safe knowing, without warning, your $20 a month pledge may become $2 or $200 a month. The gamble of support is exhilarating and debilitating. Click link, show notes.
so